part two, Madeline and I further discuss the job of being a concert master, and then I ask her about her days as a student, including her exceptional family. Let me ask you a question. Let me get your take on this. Uh, so I'm sort of going to go off a little bit on a rant that I did a long time oh, ago. Boy. Oh, boy. I can't boy. wait. <laughs> okay. So I wrote a three-part blog called The Case Against Haydn. And for most trumpet auditions, um, the first round is the Haydn Trumpet Concerto. And my thought is that that's awful. Um, and I'm... I'm <laughs> I'm a, I'm a majority of one. And the reason why, why I think it's awful is, um, especially if it's a second or third trumpet position, even a first trumpet position, you're never going to have to play that um, as part of your job. So it doesn't show any, um, any skills that you need for the job. You're usually asked, in terms of trumpet, you're usually asked to play it on an instrument that you would not play it on if you were going to be a soloist. And you're usually asked to play in the wrong style because they want to hear, you know, big sound or, or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. and, and why not do like three or four, you know, short excerpts that can show you other different styles of playing, you know, technique, lyrical playing, power, mm -hmm. whatever. Um, and so I'm wondering, like for violin, you probably have a standard Mozart concerto that you do in the first round. Do you do... Um, other things as well, or do you, does, does that make sense to you? I mean, do you find that you'll hear somebody play a Mozart concerto and they might play it really well, but they'll play it since you have a, a background in, in um, at least a little bit of a background, I think, or a lot of a background in historical performance, that you'll hear somebody play in a really romantic style, a Mozart that's not maybe appropriate, but you still think, well, I think that'd be good in the section or... Yeah, that's a really interesting conundrum. We, and the violins, we, at our auditions right now, they have a choice between the fourth and fifth concertos. Um, we used to use the third concerto as well, but it, it's different. Uh, it's not, it doesn't have quite as many difficult spots. So um, we uh, ask for the fourth or fifth concerto, usually uh, the first movement or for section auditions, sometimes just the exposition, because let's be practical, we're not going to listen to, you know, 200 people play the recapitulation of a Mozart <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> movement. And we're, again, trying to make it user-friendly for people to want to come to the audition. But um, it's hard. It's hard because, say, for example, totally hypothetical. You have a music director who has a very specific idea of what Mozart's supposed to sound like. Historically informed or, or not? Um, I would say... Particular, yeah, yeah, in that historically informed direction, but not following maybe all the rules which people might learn. Okay. So then, if you put a candidate in front of them in a final round, that plays beautifully, but plays Mozart, you know, maybe more in the middle of the road, maybe you know, a little more romantic. It's a concerto, so you know, they, they, I think they should do them, you know, and um, then you have the music director who might say, oh, well, that just, Mozart was just horrible. You know, not, well, no, I mean, they played beautifully. They played beautiful phrasing, intonation, everything. It's just a slightly different style. That's putting that candidate at extreme disadvantage. So we do not, as, as a rule, I try not to put Mozart concerto in the final round when the music director is going to be there because there's just such a wide variety of approach. Um, you're going to have a lot more people taking the same approach to Brahms' violin concerto than you are Mozart violin concerto. There's a much wider range of accept, acceptable kind of approaches, you know, but I think I would like to think that I have the ability to listen past um, stylistic differences in a concerto. I would say that in excerpts, I'm much more likely to be 
I, I think it's fine if they want to play their Mozart concerto a little more rantically, but when they come and play their excerpt from the 39th Symphony, they need to be aware of conventional, you know, the way that most American orchestras approach this music these days, which is generally, you know, tapering off strong beats or a particular articulations or sound quality, like not over vibrated and things like that. And if someone did come in and, and, and play that way, I would ask them to repeat it. And I'd say, you know, the opening of the slow movement of, of Mozart 39, could you use just poke of vibrato, hardly any vibrato, just for resonance, not for expression. And, you know, see if they can do it. Because some people be like, sure. And then they do it fine. And that's great. But other people, they can't turn off their vibrato or things like that. And then that becomes an issue in orchestra because they're not going to be able to blend. Right, right. But, so I think the trouble, though, with concertos and in auditions in general is that it's hard sometimes for some, maybe, you know, you've got a, I don't know, a, a horn player on your committee or something. And it's just much easier to compare players when they're playing the same piece. <laughs> and so, you know, that's kind of why we still do that require a little bit of concerto. And also for violinists, they tend to be more comfortable playing concertos. Um, though that is changing. I will say, 20 years ago, we would get a lot of players who played excellent concertos and terrible excerpts. And now we're getting more players who play really good excerpts and their concertos sound much, much weaker. Um, so I think that's that's really interesting because well, at least when I was in college, I was one of the few violinists who was interested in an orchestral career from a young age. Like I was about 15. I decided I want to be a concertmaster. And, you know, that's the way it is for other instruments. I mean, like, my friends who played the bass, they were practicing Helmleben when they were in high school, you know. Wow, but okay. We we didn't we didn't practice excerpts as violinists at that at that age. But I think people are coming around to the idea that, okay, if I want an orchestral career, I really need to focus on those excerpts. That's what's gonna win me the job. So that's been a kind of interesting observation is that people's excerpts are often quite quite good, but then the concerto sounds kinda weak, you know. So it, it, we like a total package, though, ideally. Well, okay, so part, or a, a large part, I guess, of your job is Boeing's, but also another part is like your relationship with the conductor, which means talking about Boeing's and what other sort of stuff. I mean, how, how often do you have to confer with the conductor and so forth? Well, just as a general rule, I try to check in with them pretty much every day that we're working together. So, you know, the music director's there, 12 or so weeks a year. Um, so during those weeks, I would definitely, you know, check in before, is there anything I need to know before we're getting started? Is We talk about, you know, issues in the orchestra, you know, things that come up that need addressing. He sometimes will just bounce things off you. Like I, I got an email that said, this is, this is the first concert of next season. Do you think we need five or four or five rehearsals for this program and things like that. So sometimes you're called upon to <laughs> to give your opinion, whether it's listened to or not. It's always hard to say, but I give it freely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. And um, so it's kind of a, kind of a jack of all trades job in that sort of way. I try not to bother them too much with stuff that I can fix. Um, but there are times where obviously you need to to defer and get their 
their take on on situations so you know there's a some personnel aspect to the position as well as far as like helping people i'm my goal is to help everyone do their best so sometimes that means off stage you know talking with people or re encouraging people and and other things like that too so it there's a lot of, of facets to it i would say well okay let's go back to how you got started your parents were musicologists um what areas of music did they go into yeah they were um music history professors my mom had been an organist and my dad his his musical career started he was a uh, in the army band and a kind of a brass player type <laughs> good for him and so then he got smart no i'm just kidding he um ended up going into music history though and um started teaching at the University of North Texas in 1962, I think. So a good long time ago. And that was just at the beginning of the historical performance era, kind of, of, of people being interested in how the music was played when it was written. And, and so he started the early music program at the University of North Texas, which uh -huh. is now quite robust. Um, but he started that back in the in the early 60s with like a vial consort and i think maybe a vocal group or something and then by the time i i was growing up there was a sackbutt band and a crumb horns and and a, a small orchestra and recorder groups and you know i mean just more and more and more ensembles and so we got drafted to all my brothers and sisters and i got drafted to play in that when we were i was 11 when i started so wow. <laughs> I came over after junior high, you know, or I was, I guess, in sixth grade or something. I came over after school to play in the Baroque Orchestra at the university. I'm sure people <laughs> wonder what I was doing there, but that's what we did. Yeah. So it was, it was Baroque music mainly that that was his, yes. his and yes, her, so, your mother as yeah, well. Yeah, they, they, he had an interest in weird things. <laughs> so for example, they wrote a two volume book on the trumpet marine, which is not a trumpet, but you probably know what it is but it was a medieval instrument that has one string and is played with um with overtones it's played with a bow but you use one finger to make uh the overtones and it does sound it has a bridge with one foot loose uh so it makes a buzzing sound and it does sort of sound like a muted trumpet but um they wrote a two volume <laughs> book of over 400 pages on on the wow. history of this instrument <laughs> okay yeah so we had a lot of uh unusual instruments like this around the house my dad kind of just followed his passions. He was fascinated with, he did a bunch of books on the Baroque oboe. And then towards the end of his life, I think he felt like he had done so much serious, you know, historical scholarly research that he, he wanted to learn about the accordion. So he started researching and writing papers on accordions, especially Cajun accordions. Um, wow. And so we had, at the time of his passing in 2015, I think there was at least 100 accordions in the house, which I have taken three from a very small collection, but um, of, you know, French accordions, I think flutinas is what they're called, just weird little French accordions. And so anyway, it was a unique way to grow up for sure. We all um, learned a lot about things that most people don't know or care, probably care to know about, but. And you have brothers and, and sisters who are also musicians. And are they yes. all string, are they string players or? Mostly, so um, there were eight kids, I'm the youngest, and um, six of the kids were string players. Um, I say were because uh, some are, have wandered off to do other things now, but for we had a concert series, a chamber music series in the Dallas area for a number of years as well. And then of course, the next question is always, 
what do the other two do now? So my seventh was a uh, is a vocalist, a singer, a voiceover artist, and then my oldest brother is um, kind of an astronomer inventor scientist hmm. person. He works at the observed. He's worked at the observatory in Hawaii, um, inventing equipment for the giant telescopes there. So really, he's definitely huh. we, we're we admire his intellect greatly. But then I had, you know, I had, so there were six string players and my siblings were in the National Symphony Associate Concertmaster there. And my brother, who's the only one still in an orchestra besides myself, is principal cello in Dallas. Um, and then I, my sister played in Houston Symphony. But, you know, over time, it's it's kind of, we've kind of decentralized, I guess I'd say. Um, my sister in National Symphonies retired uh, and it took a teaching position at TCU in Fort Worth and Another brother of mine had struggled with chronic injury and ended up going back to school to become an accountant. So we're a little bit all over the place now. But for a while there, yeah, we were, it was the Adkins family was in the or orchestra business for sure. Boy, that's for sure. Yeah. It's interesting. You, you mentioned one brother who's uh, done so much work with astronomy. Um, mm -hmm. Right now, I'm, I'm um, about halfway through um, really pushing hard to finish an opera about Caroline Herschel. I don't know if you know that name oh, or not. Oh, yeah. Yeah, her brother uh, discovered uh, Uranus and and you know made the first or the first series of large telescopes and all of that. And so oh, if, if your brother's so cool. in, yeah, she was an amazing woman, ha had an amazing life too. Yeah. But uh, anyway, I can't wait to hear it. That sounds very interesting. Well, <laughs> who knows if it'll ever get performed? But <laughs> but I'm working hard on it. So you you went to uh, Denton, North Texas State. And then you were at New England Conservatory and you studied with uh, James uh, Buswell, correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah, who unfortunately just passed away oh, last really? month. Um, yeah, in the last two months. Yeah. Oh, okay. And and the impression I have was that he was really, really a great teacher for you. What what made him such a great teacher? What qualities did he have? that, Or what did you work on also? Yeah, so my, my time studying with him was only two years, but I think I was twice as good by the time I came out as when I went in. I remember when I auditioned there, I was playing Beethoven concerto. I had no business playing I playing it. But um, the thing about, about him was that he was, I would say he was a demanding teacher, but he was also compassionate. So I had been come out of a situation where I'd had a teacher prior to that who was kind of emotionally abusive. And so I was struggling with a lot of self-doubt and confidence issues and a lot of tension, a lot of, you know, judging myself before I was even done with the first note. And, and <laughs> <laughs> so in a way, I mean, he was a great teacher for me because part of the time it was just like, let's just not do, let's just not do that. Let's just fo refocus our efforts on, on how we're going to be the best violinist we can be. But then occasionally, you know, you end up in tears and you need someone who's going to take you seriously when you have these kind of your PTSD a little bit from from a prior situation. So hmm. it was great for me. I mean, I was so intimidated. I went in for my first studio class, you know, and and he said, um, so my freshmen, they work on I was working on a concerto on Paganini Caprices and, and a Bach and a Sonata and a 20th century piece always at the same time you have all that repertoire going. And he said, and that's my freshman. He's like, for you new master's students, you know, it's get ready. And I remember thinking, I can't do this, you know, but you do, you know, and, and I practiced so much. I had honestly spent a lot of my time in undergrad not 
practicing enough. <laughs> I went to a, a, a state school with a bunch of jazz musicians, so I spent a lot of time, you know, <laughs> hanging out down at Rick's listening to the lab bands play and drinking beer and stuff. So I, I, I got to NEC and I was like, you know, I got two years. I need to get a job in two years. So I better freaking do this. So I, I worked my butt off there. He was, he was demanding, but, and honestly, the, the man is so, was so, so knowledgeable. He was like an encyclopedia. I mean, I learned so much and he did. Cause he asked me, you know what I want to do. And I said, I want to be a concert master. And he said, that's fantastic. I think the orchestra world could use, you know, some strong leadership, especially, you know, as a woman, there aren't, still aren't that many, but especially then there are just a handful of women concertmasters. And he says, but do me a favor. Don't bring me any excerpts. He's like, go, go study with Mary Lou, Speaker Churchill is principal second, legendary principal second of the Boston Symphony. Take your excerpts to her because I don't do excerpts. So, so we kind of had a deal and, uh, she was fantastic mentor for me to, as she was for so many, you know, generations of violinists who came through Boston for orchestral playing. And the other cool thing is that after I won my position in Baltimore, I, I still finished my master's degree. So I uh, won the position in January and I spent my whole last semester just learn, like we'd learn a new concerto every two weeks just to do it, you know. So he'd come in and he'd say, ah, what do you think about the Shimanovsky? Do you want to learn that? So I'd learn that as best I could in two or three weeks, play it in studio class, move on, you know. So I learned a great deal of repertoire with him as well. And and he talked a lot in terms of musical terms about phrasing or subtleties in styles between Brahms and Tchaikovsky, or that's not so subtle, but in, in terms of how, how to approach different pieces or... You know, he was such a an individual like he I don't know that you probably have this on the trumpet quite a lot I'll I'll just venture he was kind of a violin jock like he he could play oh, okay. any anything mm -hmm. so especially what we because I did have a pretty strong background in like stylistic things you know so we spent a lot of, uh, more of time in my lessons I mean I can't speak to how he was with others but trying to sound the best we could sound on the violin like how do you do that you know and of course there's sound issues and things but it's a lot of tech a technical stuff as well um you know he would sit in the corner in his chair and just he could just no matter what anyone was working on he could just repeat it to you like who knows how long it'd been since he played you know Penderecki or whatever it was somebody's working on but he just just bust out the passage it was just truly remarkable so that was probably the side of violin playing that I needed the most so I really did need someone to kind of kick my butt on that stuff and he did for sure. He, when I got there and he said, um, okay, here's four new Paganini caprices and you're going to play these in two weeks on studio class. Two weeks for new Paganini, new to me Paganini caprices and I had never worked on. And I was absolutely terrified. Here I was going to play in front of all my new grad school colleagues for the first time. Something that, how was that ever going to be ready in two weeks? But somehow you do it, you know? You yeah. Do, so. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, when you were in college, maybe even now, but especially like when you were in college, did you have like one or two favorite violinists or I guess as trumpet players would sort of have their heroes, you know, like a principal trumpet in a in a major orchestra sure. or a soloist? Yeah. You know, th that's changed so much for me over the years. Um, I remember, you know, in the 90s, like I played Gil Shaham's barber and corngold cd of course a cd like till it was broken practically i loved that disc and 
as we've gone through the years, I think one of the most interesting things is how many different styles the soloists play in now, which is really, really great. I think, you know, you'll get someone who comes who's someone very unique, like Vilde Frang or someone like this. It's like she, what she does is so kind of like blows your mind. You're like, oh, I've never heard of this before. So I, I kind of have people that I like for different repertoire. And then, you know, someone like Augustine Hadelik. I mean, he sounds good on everything he plays. So if there's a video of him, I will probably click on it because it's just a stupendous violin playing. So you're naming names, though. Excuse me for interrupting. You're naming okay. names of people who are not known to the general public. That's well. Is it, yeah, but I'm sure your audience is well educated, right? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea if I have an audience. I mean, I guess my tastes, my tastes were never for the... I don't even want to say names, but some of the traditional players, I mean, I really love old school stuff. So I'm going to also going to hear Heifetz or Milstein or somebody like that. But I didn't really grow up listening or hero worshiping the violinist that a lot of people of my generation did. My parents, we had a lot of recordings around the house, but it was always, it was never really like your Itzhak Perlman or something like that. It was going to be other things. Yeah. <laughs> so I would say that I, I didn't really grow up you know, hero-worshipping that generation of violinists, which I think is pretty unusual because I think most people my age probably grew up, you know, thinking it's like Itzhak Perlman and Isaac Stern and it was just, that was the way it was and nobody else could play. But I think I got, uh, you know, exposed to a lot of other viewpoints along the way, you know, and in everything from like early historical performers and things like that. So my tastes kind of got, they're probably weird compared to your average violinist, but... I, and now I just want to hear someone play something in a unique way. I mean, not gimmicky, but just really personal, I guess. You know, there was a, um, there was a couple, a married couple that I interviewed, and, and the woman's a violin player, uh, Sarah Siu is her name, um, from Ireland. And somehow we got to talking about, well, obviously, about violinists. And she mentioned, I forget his name now, but I went on YouTube, and there's a, a recording of him playing at the proms, and I forget with which orchestra, but playing the Tchaikovsky. And I think he's from Iceland or Finland or something like that. And it was a very, really interesting interpretation of the Tchaikovsky, a really sort of free and more like chamber music, sort of. Sure, but, yeah. But boy, I, sure freak, I forget his name. And he did this encore that was a really funny encore where he had the public involved and all that kind of oh, stuff. that's cool. Yeah. And I guess, and he conducts, and I guess he's got a really big career now. So I guess there are a lot of people now who are, who are not, what would you say, the standard brand, who are doing extremely well. Yeah, I think so. I mean, as a musician, I'm interested in, you know, kind of individual voices. Um, and that's ballsy to do on Tchaikovsky Concerto, because that's one that's it's a little harder to do something unique with Tchaikovsky than it is with some of the upper, other repertoire. But it kind of is a little bit the way it is, just yeah. like a barn burner, a barn burner, you know. Yeah. But um. Yeah, so I definitely don't think, you know, you were saying I was a Boeing geek, but but I don't think I'm a violin geek in that in that way because I have friends in the orchestra here who are sometimes shocked. They're like, well, you've never heard that recording of the Greek sonata? And I'm like, no, I haven't. Yeah. <laughs> I was much more likely listening to Queen or, um, you know, some jazz or like something else than I was sitting listening to violinists, so... That's just the way it is. Well, you've, you're a concertmaster, but you're also a soloist and a chamber musician. And do you 
think you have to have a, sort of like a different mentality for each one of those. A soloist or, or playing chamber music, playing in a trio, for example, or or concertmaster. Obviously, concertmaster, you're leading a whole section. Right. I guess, you know, now that I'm kind of used to doing all those things, I don't think of it as, you know, a different role per se. I mean, ideally, all of those things involve collaboration. Um, even when you're leading the orchestra, you're you can't just leave the cellos in the dust and things like that, you know, and, you know, it's so kind of cliche to say everything's like chamber music, but it really is, you know, and if you're a soloist or you're a concert master, you're always collaborating with, with other people. Um, there is sort of a shift in technically in how I approach things because like a sound production is a big one. Um, our hall here in Utah is really, really big. It's um, almost 3000 seats. And, so the way you have to project when you play a concerto or a, a solo in orchestral repertoire, like if I went in and played a chamber music concert like that, I would get tossed out on my ear by my colleagues. They'd be like, why are you making so much sound and would you stop? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I think that, you know, a lot of the readjustment that I have to do when I'm moving from orchestral to solo to chamber is a sound concept. That still can be challenging because I this happens to me every year. I play here in Utah during, you know, most of the year, and then the hall is really big, and you have to project a lot to cut through. It has kind of a a, a warm quality to it, but it, it to cut through, you know, you just kind of have to have a little more intense sound. And then I go to Grand Teton Music Festival where I usually play a few weeks as concertmaster each summer, and that hall is 600 seats and extremely resonant. And I play the first few notes and I'm like, wow. And every year I do this, I forget, you know, I'm like, Madeline, you don't have to play like this here. You, you can just play, you can explore the soft ends and you can play with a much more gauzy sound or, you know, all those things. So it's really, really, really fun from that perspective. So I would say that it's not so different really for me to do these different things anymore. It's all kind of just part of who I am now. Um, I think it was hard. I remember when I was second chair in Baltimore for many years, that was the hardest part of that job was when you would have to go from being in, you know, in a moment from being basically a section player to stepping out, like maybe the concert masters dropped out to play solo to something else. All of a sudden you're in charge. Yeah. <laughs> like that switch is very difficult. Um, but now when you're concert master all the time, it's almost easier. You just get to do what you do and you don't have to worry so much about fading into the background versus stepping out and leading suddenly. One of the people I interviewed actually early on was a colleague of yours in Grand Teton, and that's Gail Williams. And Oh, yes. Yeah, yes. yeah, great, great player. And she talks a lot about chamber music and how when she plays in orchestra, she's thinking constantly about playing with the people, you know. Yeah, uh, who's I she playing with for way. this phrase? Yeah, and she also mentioned actually she talked about Boeing. She plays uh, in a chamber music group with Joe Genwaldi. I don't know if you know Joe or not, but she said she watches like when they do the Brahms trio. She watches his his bow, and when she um, takes a breath, um, she really tries to breathe the way he would move the bow, you know, back back and forth, so that there's no discernible break in in you know the sound of of, sure. of what she's doing. Yeah, that's really interesting because we, I try to emulate what the winds do because I feel like breathing is much more natural than like if there's a big retake or something, how, how the wind section breathes or brass section breathes, it's much more natural human 
like the voice, the human voice than, than technically whatever we're doing. So we think of that in terms of timing, um, in terms of articulation too. Um, one of the hardest things to do for a string section is to play a pizzicato at the end of a movement, like when the winds are, the winds will start this beautiful chord with maybe a hairpin on it or something, and we're required to play a pizzicato at the beginning of that, which is, it's so, so, so difficult. It's so difficult for the orchestra to feel it together. There's really not any kind of cue I can give that would make that foolproof. You know, it's, we have to feel it. And so like approaching pizzicatos, like you're one of the wind, the wind chorale members starting this beautiful chord. It's, it's really interesting. Also wind players and brass players, I feel like know how to do kind of like a marcato stroke. So like a, a long, long notes, but with spaces, there's a really natural way, pa, 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 that they do that, that we have trouble with, <laughs> you uh -huh. know? So I try to just say like, imitate the length the brass is playing. That's, uh -huh. that's a length, that's a length you guys play till you're blue in the face. And, and it's always the pa, pa, it's gonna always be the right length. So that's really cool that she does that with the, with the bow stuff. You know, it's interesting talking about pizzicatos is when I was living in LA many, many, many years ago, the Berlin Philharmonic played in Los Angeles and Von Karajan conducted. And wow. the, the string sound, I mean, it was, I, the, they started out and it was like I had never heard a string sound like that in my life. I mean, it was so beautiful and so warm. And, and the concert was perfect, except I don't think they ever played a pizzicato together. There was not one pizzicato that, that was together. I was so surprised because the orchestra was just state-of-the-art. And, of course, Von Karajan, legendary conductor and everything. But the pizzicatos were not, were not the, together. The struggle is real. I mean, it, it, is, it can be so challenging. I, when I was in the Baltimore Symphony, that was where I had much, probably the best luck with pizzicatos because we had a bass section that, in my feeling, knew exactly where the pizzicatos go. Um, I feel like bass players are really good at pizzicatos, you know. So if huh. you have a, ba okay. a bass section, they do it so much more. And there's something so much more, I don't know, maybe not buoyant, but so much, so much of ability to kind of pull a pizzicato out. You know, when a violin, it's not very resonant and it's tick, tick, yeah. you know, it kind of comes uh -huh. out like that a lot of the time. It's not super pleasant to listen to. So the bass section can make it sound like a timpani or something that really kind of a buoyant round sound. And right. I had struggled with that a little when I was in Pittsburgh at the concert you saw because the basses sit behind the first violins or behind the cellos on our side of the stage. So I couldn't look at them. I'm used to looking oh. at the bass player to play my pizzicato huh. to, okay. to time with them since they're, they're very natural at it. But they were behind me. So it was a little bit of a guessing game with mixed results, I would say, on that concert. Really? Okay. I didn't, I didn't notice that at all. But Well, thank you so much. But um, <laughs> You're welcome. A lot of them were together, but... I would have felt much more comfortable if I could have seen them and just, you know, everybody breathing together and everything. So it's a learned skill that takes the whole, the whole string section being able to feel it together. There's really right. no other way. There's no, you know, conductors help can help a lot. And for example, David Robertson this past week in the Brahms three, he, he was great about giving us, I wish your viewers only for this moment could see my hand so I could demonstrate, but he was great at giving us a pizzicato cue instead of a normal downbeat, you know? Because uh, a lot of times conductors, they'll, they'll just be still conducting in the slow movement tempo. And oh, there's uh -huh. the last, there's the last bar. <laughs> it's like, oh, good luck. Yeah. But he knew exactly what to do, which was 
he's letting the winds hold the cord and he gives us a cue in it in a pit kind of a pizzicato tempo like up down like oh, in a way uh, that we yeah, know yeah. exactly where it's going to be instead of the last beat which is just like it's never ever going to work yeah, right right you know? so when conductors know how to do that obviously that is of great assistance but it still takes us like it's that kind of having your antenna out mysterious ability for 50 people to play together it's hard you know one thing one thing in, in pittsburgh i was sitting in the front row and one thing that was i don't know if i would have noticed this if i was sitting further back in the hall but i had a clear view of, of the first violins and and there was a passage in the tchaikovsky second symphony i think it was maybe in the last movement where you had it was a forte passage or fortissimo and it was eighth notes at a, in a fast tempo, and it was all down bows for maybe four oh, measures yeah. or something mm -hmm. like that. And just watching all of you do that was really exciting. It was oh, just, good. it was great <laughs> to watch. Yeah, that's a famous place that dun 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 yes, dun, yeah. dun dun dun. Yeah, that yeah. one. And he n indicates down bows. Uh, oh, he does. Uh, okay. Tchaikovsky does. So yeah. Oh, so okay. You okay. You so kind of stuck right with it, but it's pretty fast, and so it is. Yeah. Uh, it can be. Um, exhausting that little bit, especially yeah. if you have to repeat it three times. In addition to her job as concertmaster, Madeline has also played on Baroque period instruments since age 11. And this is one part of our discussion in the bonus room. <laughs> <laughs> 